This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our two-time celebrity guest scorer, the award-winning author of Dead Ringer and Shadowcast, B.P. Morris, back to the show. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm super excited to talk about The Shining today. Tonight, we discuss the seminal horror film The Shining from 1980, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, Danny Lloyd as Danny Doc Torrance, Scatman Crothers as Dick Halloran, Barry Nelson as Stuart Ullman, Philip Stone as Delbert Grady, Joe Turkle as Lloyd, Tony Burton as Larry Durkin, Barry Denon as Bill Watson, and Lisa and Louise Burns as the Grady Twins. Recognition for this movie, The Shining was released on May 23, 1980, in a limited capacity, but was quickly wide-released within a month. It was initially met with mixed, albeit mostly negative, reviews at the time, including both Siskel and Ebert and Pauline Kael. This is the only one of Kubrick's last 11 films to receive no nominations at all from the Oscars or Golden Globes or the BAFTAs. Instead, it was Kubrick's only film to be nominated at the Razzie Awards, including Worst Director and Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall, in the first year that award was given. Duvall's nomination was retracted by the Razzie Committee on March 31, 2022. Partly due to the persistent comments of author Stephen King about hating the adaptation of his novel as well as the mixed reviews, the film would only go on to gross a projected $47.3 million on a budget of $19 million, making it only the 12th best movie of 1980. Do either of you want to take a shot at any of the other films that finished ahead of it that year? In 1980? 1980. Correct. I know Friday the 13th came out that year. Did that beat it by chance? No, that was number 15. Mm-hmm. Chariots of Fire? No, that was the year after. Okay, so... Um... So a couple of films that finished below it, American Gigolo, Raging Bull, Xanadu... Ugh. Caddyshack. Caddyshack, that's a crime, but okay. It was R-rated and I couldn't get in. So I'm sure there were a lot of other people that would have saw it that couldn't get in. So here are the 11 that finished ahead of it. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. 9 to 5. Stir Crazy. Kramer vs. Kramer. Any Which Way You Can. Private Benjamin. Oh. Coal Miner's Daughter. Smokey and the Bandit 2. <laughs> okay. The Blues Brothers, your Best Picture winner of 1980, Ordinary People, yes, and Popeye. Oh, oh, oh! That's that's like nails on a chalkboard. In fact, Popeye made five million more than this movie. How? Oh, it was so bad. Because it's Robin Williams coming off of Mork and Mindy. Uh, well, he had done several good films before that. Exactly. The World According to Garp was better than this, and that was only mediocre. So you have one of the seminal directors pairing with a up-and-coming actor and comedian who is on a popular television show. Of course people turned out for that movie. 
and then went away going, <laughs> It was so bad. I just, ugh. Also starring Shelley Duvall. Yeah, I was about yes. to say that. That's the only thing I can say about her performance in The Shining, which is at least it was not as bad as it was in Popeye. However, after a few years, the film would undergo a significant reappraisal by both audiences and critics. In 2001, the film was ranked 29th on AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills list, and Jack Torrance was named the 25th greatest villain on AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains list in 2003. In 2005, the quote, here's Johnny, was ranked number 68 on AFI's 100 Years 100 movie quotes list. It had Channel 4's all-time scariest moment, and Bravo TV named one of the film's scenes sixth on their list of the 100 scariest movie moments. Film critics Kim Newman and Jonathan Romney both placed it on their top 10 list for the 2002 Sight and Sound poll. In 2005, Total Film ranked The Shining as the fifth greatest horror movie of all time. In 2006, Roger Ebert, who was initially critical of the work, inducted the film into his Great Movies series, saying, Stanley Kubrick's cold and frightening The Shining challenges us to decide, who is the reliable observer? Whose idea of events can we trust? It is the elusive open-endedness that makes Kubrick's film so strangely disturbing. In 2010, The Guardian newspaper ranked it the fifth best horror film of all time. It was voted the 62nd greatest American film ever made in a 2015 poll conducted by the BBC. In 2017, Empire Magazine's Reader's Poll ranked the film at number 35 on its list of the 100 greatest movies. In 2021, the film ranked at number two by Time Out on their list of the 100 best horror movies. Critics, scholars, and crew members, such as Kubrick's producer Jan Harlan, have discussed the film's enormous influence on popular culture. In 2012, The Shining was ranked the 75th greatest film of all time in the Sight and Sound Director's Poll, and the film appeared at 88 on the critics' list in 2022, but was left off of the director's poll this time around. In 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Finally, 39 years after the original film, a sequel, Dr. Sleep, was released on November 8, 2019. The Shining currently holds an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 66 score on Metacritic, and a 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. VP, if memory serves me, this is your favorite movie? Yes, it is. It's the El Numero Uno for me. So what makes it your favorite? It is so complex that every time you watch it, it is it, it takes a different it has a different take on it. Every time it, it it shows a different part of itself to you. And and Kubrick put in so much obsessive attention to it that it's not just a standard horror movie, especially at the time I first saw it. I had just seen a bunch of B flick. Oh, there's a scary face. There's a slasher in the woods. This takes horror and, and dread and the psychological aspect to a different level that a lot of horror movies don't do. Now, are you somebody that believes that everything in the movie is intentional by Kubrick or that there is room for unintentional error or inconsistency? I believe that there is room for very minor inconsistencies as other movies do have just general error because, I mean, he is a person. People do tend to talk about him like a god sometimes, but it's possible for even the most perfection-oriented person to still make a mistake. And 
I don't think absolutely every continuity error in, in any of his works is necessarily intentional unless he has said otherwise that you know, there's a chair that goes missing in the background of one of the famous scenes in this movie and everyone thinks that it's like, it means something. And I just think, you know, people overlook things. No one's perfect. It's not, not everything is a complete, you know, story onto itself. But I think the vast majority, like 90% of this movie is dripping with meaning. I think there is a lot of intention in here, but I also think that people place a little bit too much of an onus on that. I'd probably fall into a similar camp with you, but this is a movie that I think has gotten bigger in the internet age as more people can kind of theorize about all the possibilities with this, given how intentional Kubrick was with just about every one of his films and the amount of different takes that he had to do, the amount of almost psychological games that he played with his actors really leads into this mythical aura of what he did to create any of his movies, let alone this one. So I think that'll be an interesting part to delve into with the discussion, but dad, let's bring you in here. This is only the second time we've discussed a Stanley Kubrick film on the show. We did full metal jacket back in our first season in 2020 What about him and his films do you think stands out for you? And why do you think his films appeal to so many historians and critics alike? For the most part, the thing that stands out is that he's so intellectual and so, I guess the word would be psychological. Every one of his films has a certain element of mental break. It's like he's fascinated by depression by psychological it's almost like he honors schizophrenia at times because you look at all of the different films clockwork orange the shining 2001 full metal jacket full metal jacket every one of the of those at some point a character has a mental flip where they completely change and the movie covers and goes through that process it's it's as if kubrick had either experienced something like this himself or somebody in his family or something or he was so fascinated by it that he built an entire career around studying it so one of the other films that i would mention in that repertoire of uh, break films dr strangelove famously has a paranoia character that uh Goes insane. Floridation. Floridation. I don't think that line is ever actually said in the film. You've repeated that to me for 30 years now, and I well, don't remember that actually sure being in the film. Last time I watched it, I don't remember that because I was trying to pay attention for it. Regardless, I can name at least two films, one controversial and one not, uh, where I don't think there is actually a psychotic break. Now, The debatable one is 2001 A Space Odyssey, only because if you're going to argue that there's a psychological break in that movie, it has to be the computer Hal. It is. It is. But that would be arguing against what I think is his archetypal character and only doing what Hal's programming is set up to do. So I don't think that's a break. I think that's actually part of his programming. I think that what Kubrick is ultimately saying is, is that we are what we are. And whether it's Hal being programmed that way or people by themselves just have a proclivity towards it that they can't control or help. 
So it doesn't matter if it's a human or hell. Also, I don't think there's a psychological break in the movie Spartacus. Okay, that's one that I could possibly see. But then again, most people feel that's one of his aberrations. And if you ever ask or seen a uh, a uh, interview with Kirk Douglas, he would say that it was a complete aberration because he did not like working with Kubrick. Which is why they did back-to-back films together. Which makes no sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a means to an end. It was like Steven Soderbergh doing Ocean's movies so that he could do all of his other projects. His auteur stuff. So, VP, where does The Shining rank on the all-time horror movies list? So, it's it's number one. I mean, it's the number one, like, regular movie of all time and number one horror movie for me, in case anyone's curious. My, my number two is the original ring, and number three is Scream, which we have discussed on here. It's, yeah, it's my favorite. It totally changed my opinion of the horror genre, too, because when I first saw this, I was 17, and... I was just starting to get into a horror movie, but at the time, this was like early 2000s, there was a lot of crap coming out in horror. It was a lot of torture porn or a lot of uh, like Final Destination, just stuff that was very, you know, let's get teenagers in movie theaters to spend money and not really give you anything particularly of depth, just, you know, some gore, some scares, some creepy faces. And my friends were really into that. And I I watched some movies with them and I just wasn't really getting it because it was... It was scary, but after I was out of the movie theater or out of there, you know, watching it at their house, I didn't think about it. You know, I wasn't bothered by it going about my day. But then I sat down and saw The Shining with one of my friends who had seen it before. And he had primed me to tell me that there's all these theories about it, that there's, uh, you know, it's, it could be potentially about the Native American genocide. So I was looking at it through the lens already of there's more meaning than just, you know, scary things on screen. And it t- it stuck with me. For days on end, I was like trying to kind of figure all the pieces to the puzzle out. And this, you know, I'm guessing this is around like what, 2007 ish. So it, there still wasn't as much on the internet as there is now about The Shining. So I was falling down, you know, weird Kubrick fan pages trying to figure out all the meanings. And I ended up reading the book because I wanted to compare. And I'd never had a movie do that to me where I was like, trying to put all the pieces together and dealing with the feeling of just like the dread that comes with this movie. It's not just, you know, Oh, you're scared, startle response, you know, that that's really typical of all horror movies. It's, it has this lingering negativity, negativity to it that is kind of intellectual as well. And it made me really interested in the genre as a whole and that it can be like a, a deeper thing. And then just, you know, here's a cheap thrill. You know, as I've said on many occasions, this is the first time I'm watching this particular movie. And it really did stick out to me that there are not a lot of the jump scare moments that you get in some of these other, as you mentioned, like torture porn type of movies. Stuff that I don't particularly like because it just almost celebrates violence for the sake of violence and cruelty almost. This to me is a lot different and much more intellectually stimulating because of what has gone into it. It's the psycho or it's the psychological and you mentioned it dad with the break that Nicholson either never really has. Maybe he's just psychotic the entire time. And I think there are more clues in it than the version that you and I watched 
Unfortunately, the only one that was available on streaming is the European version that's 20 minutes shorter and doesn't have certain select scenes like the one where Danny and Wendy are at the doctor and it comes out or the reveal of the abuse. So I, I only found about that after I had seen the movie, but it really struck me that this is more of a tone movie. And you really get that from the outset, even from that opening scene where you have kind of that doomsday music in the background playing in the tracking shot, knowing that he's on his way somewhere and that you know what this movie is. He's probably on his way to his impending doom, especially if you've heard about the movie a lot in advance of this. And I think this has taken on a life outside of the movie that it becomes iconic in itself. So then I posit, is this Jack Nicholson's most famous character? I mean, it's the first movie that comes up if you Google his name. So that that's a interesting take. So at least Google thinks it is. Uh, but as far as the rest of the world, I think it could be. I, I argue there's a chance that the, at least the line from A Few Good Men of You Can't Handle the Truth oh, might sure. be slightly more iconic but i don't think people remember that character outside of that courtroom scene where people remember jack's like general essence or general vibe so that and also one flew over the cuckoo's nest as well is is and the departed too i mean it's hard he's got a great career he's got a lot of roles but really only the one that you mentioned there and i had been thinking and racking my brain i mean he had a great lineup where he kind of breaks out in easy rider in 69 he eventually gets the starring role in Chinatown in 72 and then follows that up a couple of years later, as you mentioned, with Over the Cuckoo's Nest and wins Best Actor, I think, at least one of those times. He's nominated several times. He ends up winning for Supporting Actor for Terms of Endearment. But outside of a couple of these supporting roles, because I wouldn't say that he is the lead character in like The Departed, which is one of my favorite movies. Really, I had a hard time thinking of anybody, but you came up with the almost perfect right answer is Colonel Jessup. And that's because he owns the like two scenes that he's in in uh, A Few Good Men. But other than that, I, I just I failed to come up with any one character that has almost of a life of its own outside of any of his movies. There are a lot of great movies like I love as good as it gets. It's just that character by itself is not publicly recognizable. Yeah. Same with Something's Gotta Give, which I saw, which I think is probably one of his lesser good movies. It's, uh, I have to watch dumb kind of rom-coms when I'm sick. So I was, I had COVID a few months ago and I decided to watch, like, I'd never seen it. So I was like, I'll just throw this on. And I was, I was like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I wish he never wasn't made this movie. So like, I was embarrassed for everyone involved, like <laughs> writer, actor, director. I was like, I'm embarrassed. The only person I'm really embarrassed for for being in that movie is Keanu. Outside of oh, that, that's right. kind of what I expected from everybody else in that movie. Oh, I forgot about Keanu in that. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. But he can do no wrong, so he gets a pass. Well, we're going to mention Keanu in a couple of weeks when we do John Wick with another friend of mine for the show. But Keanu should not have been in anything that was not an action movie. Yeah. I'm actually going to make one of my hot takes coming up that uh, he is the defining action star of my lifetime because he's done it three times. Thank you for picking him over Tom Cruise. No, no shade to Tom Cruise. But Tom Cruise isn't exactly always the action star of my lifetime. He's spanned far enough that, you know, there's Mm -hmm. multiple eras of Tom Cruise, but 
if you think about Keanu, he has three different versions of his action startup. You could say point break and or speed. I would probably go with speed over point break. I don't care much for point break. I know that's hot and controversial. Then the Matrix and then John Wick. So he's reinvented himself three times. And all three of them, it never really comes into the conversation that he's an action star, but he is. No, I agree. Have you seen The Lake House? What's your opinion on The Lake House? I have not gotten to that one yet. Okay. It's, I mean, it's it's not amazing, but hey, if you like Keanu and it, it, you want to watch something kind of, I don't know, chill, it's a good one. Well, I think he can be a good actor when he chooses to be. It's just his best starring roles are in action films. But steering it back to Jack Nicholson, what do you think, Dad? Well, I think it is probably the one role that kind of launched him. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I can come at this through longitudinal history, which is even though he was a big star from Easy Rider and from Chinatown and One Flew, he was not a household name. The two things that made him a household name and became really Jack, you could say Jack, and you'd know who you're talking about, was The Shining and the Los Angeles Lakers. Which took off about the same period of time. Correct. And that's really what propelled him, was the sunglasses on the the side court and this and the iconic scene of him sticking his head through the door that I think even if you're a casual moviegoer, if you saw that scene, you'd go, oh, that's The Shining, even if you've never seen the movie. Well, that's because it's on fucking (laughs) T-shirts. And a Mountain Dew commercial, by the way. Did you guys see the newest Mountain Dew commercial? Wasn't that? I thought that was a couple of years ago that they did that for like a Super Bowl commercial. I thought, I mean, it was trending on Twitter with Brian Cranston as Jack. Yeah, I, I know they had done a commercial like that recently, and I, I couldn't remember who had done it, but I wanted to say it was still in vogue, because I think this this movie takes on a new life with each generation, mm-hmm. which is one of the, the odd things about this, is it still seems fresh, even though it's probably one of the older, I guess, horror movies, if you will. I mean, it's not like any of the 90s or... 2000s ones that I grew up with or that at least my generation grew up I was not a fan of like Saw or you mentioned Final Destination uh, Paranormal Activity some of those okay all right I'm sorry time out children okay I grew up going to to uh, birthday parties where we was sleepovers watching the original Frankenstein Frankenstein's Bride Dracula with all those so that's how old. This is back in the 30s and 40s. And you're volunteering this information? Okay, this is where it was. And when I was a young person, that's when Friday the 13th was originally released. And that's when Freddy Krueger started. So I grew up in this era. And I'm going to say this. I, I'm sure producers and directors of horror from the 70s and 80s would argue with me. But I'll swear, honest to God, this is why friends of mine would always take their girlfriends to these for one reason, because it would scare the crap out of the girls and they would cling to them throughout the movie. And that was the way they had to get close to their girlfriends in the movie theater without looking like it's a come on. 
And I know this for a fact because I've had this discussion with kids when I was in high school. Well, I know it for a fact because actually I just read a book about the horror uh, cinema industry and it's actually a tactic that the producers and the like the heads of the thing, they, the reason why they make sure there's always like a one PG-13 horror movie being released every so often is because they know they're going to get the date movies. So there you go, Dad. You can take Mom to Megan. Yes. <laughs> I, I couldn't get Mom even to listen to five minutes of this while I was watching it. I mean, but that's because she hates Nicholson. Well, of course, because she thinks he's creepy. But I mean, we're talking about a woman who ran from the room almost in like screaming from what's the the uh, being John Malkovich, John Malkovich film in the line of fire because oh, Malkovich man. sounded creepy when he was on the phone. <laughs> she she was having nightmares for two days. I don't know. I had a conversation yesterday with one of my sisters who said that she couldn't sleep for a week after seeing The Little Mermaid. So I wonder how that got (laughs) passed down. Because of Ursula. (laughs) I had no idea that people were freaked out by Disney films, like the Disney films that came out when I was a kid. Apparently, the Ursula scene scarred children for life and and scar from uh, Lion King with the whole, you know little army of hyenas he has and the smoke and the elephants. Great. Apparently that freaked out a bunch of kids, but it did not even register to me. So maybe I was a born horror fan. <laughs> it was not freaky. I tried to identify which sister um, would I be wrong by going, if it lacks humor. Yes, you would be absolutely correct. <laughs> but the thing yeah. is, is like Jurassic Park is aimed at kids and that's just like a kid's horror film. I mean, the dinosaurs out there potentially to eat you. So I, I don't quite understand this. There's there's this weird pinging back and forth. Either you're like in one complete camp or the other. You're very rarely in the median portion where you don't like this stuff, but some of it doesn't like truly grip you. There's a there's a aspect of this is when you are expecting it versus when you are not expecting it. If you were going to a Disney film. You are not expecting to be scared. If you are going to a film that you are told is a horror film, you are expecting it. It's kind of like, I'm going to tickle you and you can control your laughter. Whereas if somebody just comes up from behind you and starts, you can't. That's the difference. So we'll transition into relationships with this movie. As I mentioned, because I am a shining virgin, I survived. But, Dad, what was your original relationship to this movie? This was one of the films, it was when HBO was in its nuance, when it was just getting on cable stations. We had it, and I watched it. And I was talking about this. And the counselor that we had for church youth group thought it was funny. And so she invited everybody over to her house after youth group and we watched The Shining on HBO. So there was about 20 kids sitting in her living room watching this. And of course, I knew where all the scenes or the intense scenes were. So I'm, of course, coming up behind people and poking them and going, ah! And uh, they kind of made me leave. But interestingly, the house that we were in was the house that I ended up purchasing before you were born and that was the first house you had ever lived in, was the house that that was done in. 
Okay, I, I just can't even really react to that without much more thought. <laughs> so, Dad, let's give everyone some background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson, takes a winter caretaker's position at the remote Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains, which closes every winter season. Jack is advised that the previous caretaker killed his family and himself in the hotel during a fit of madness. Jack's son Danny, Danny Lloyd, and his wife Wendy, Shelley Duvall, are set to join him. Danny has telepathic ability, and before leaving for the seasonal break, head chef Dick Halloran, Scatman Crothers, informs Danny that the two share this ability, which he calls shining. Halloran tells Danny the hotel has a shine due to its residue from unpleasant past events, and warns him to avoid room 237. Soon Jack's mental health starts to deteriorate. As he falls into madness, the shine from the hotel casts its spells on those inside. Thank you. All right, so what is this movie about? Anyone want to take a stab? Because I think we're all going to say different things. So I, for, for later, I actually wrote down every single fan theory that I could find. So when we're, when we're at that point, okay. we can go into what well, just a bunch throw of people them out now. think. Okay. Okay. So, and then settle on the one uh, you actually one believe. One that I think. Okay. All right. So there's a lot of them and they get weird. So obviously there's the first plot that there, that you basically just read that there's evil spirits at the hotel that drive Jack to murder his family. The other theories are there are no ghosts. Jack is just going insane and those are just figments of his imagination. Then there's there are no ghosts. It's Wendy going insane and the whole thing is a figment of her imagination. The whole thing is a metaphor for domestic child or sexual abuse, for alcoholism. And there's also a theory that Jack can also shine, not just Danny. And then it is a metaphor for Native American genocide, the Holocaust against Jewish people in Europe, the moon landing being faked, the Federal Reserve and the abandonment of the gold standard, and then my personal favorite that I just found, it's about the Beatles and Yoko Ono. <laughs> okay, I hadn't seen that one before. You have to really search the bowels of YouTube, but it's there. It's also about, uh, it's supposed to correspond with the last album that the Beatles made. It's it's a... It's a trip. <laughs> so is the scary music supposed to be Yoko singing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Honestly, there are some that are much more believable than others. Obviously, the Native American genocide portion of things is quite obviously alluded to, it's given that the site of the hotel is on a Indian burial ground. But there are things that are much less likely and you have to really read between the lines. And I'm not even talking about the Beatles and Yoko so much as the faked moon landing. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the fake moon landing is a bunch of crap, if you ask me. I, that's going to piss off a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists out there, but I, I don't buy. I can buy some of the other ones, but not that one. Honestly, Yoko seems more likely to me than, than, than the moon landing. So which one do you settle on? So I actually settle on, so basically everything that is like what we see, the, the very, you know, the, the general plot, plus I believe that Jack can shine because I have read Dr. Sleep and I've watched Dr. Sleep and I believe they, they mentioned that. So Danny as an adult becomes a bit of an alcoholic because it uh, tempers your ability to shine and it's, it's painful. You know, you're getting a lot of 
awful images. You can feel other people's pain. And I think Jack is uh, can shine. And the reason he's an alcoholic is because he's been trying to temper that ability. And he didn't have a mentor like like Halloran has been t- you know, explaining to Danny, like, this is what this is. This is how you use it. And he's now trapped in a place that has a lot of paranormal activity that he can pr- you know, pick up on and he doesn't have alcohol. So it's like, he's at the most vulnerable. And so to me, that's, that's what's going on. I do believe there are evil spirits. I don't believe he's just going insane. And, and there might be, you know, a native American or a federal reserve statement going on, but I think they're just lingering in the background. Dad, what did you settle on? I don't know. Most of Kubrick's work is a Rorschach test. You show it to five people, you'll get five different things. I think he likes that. I I can just picture him sitting in his office sometime just laughing about the fact that no one really understands what he did. And he thinks this is like the ultimate inside joke, and one that lasts in perpetuity, because we'll be arguing about his films for as long as there's people looking at his films. And so I can't... I can't determine. I can tell you what my thought is, which is this is all a psychological aspect. And again, I go back to my comments earlier that Kubrick really is fascinated by mental break, schizophrenia, uh, mental illness, whatever you want to call it. And I think it, everything is a case study in how it takes place. And it is something that people don't really grasp. Part of me says, why don't you just explain what it is you're trying to say? But the other part of me is that in real or in reality, people don't see mental illness as it happens. It's not something you pay attention to until it's there. You don't see the signs of or the denigration into that phase. That more than anything is what makes it difficult to follow sometimes what Kubrick's doing because you see the beginning and you see the end and you don't pick up on the transition, which is normal for humans in general. So what you're saying is, is you would rather mental illness announce itself by uh, hatcheting down your door. Well, this is a, you know, as we're, we're dealing with more and more problems with mental illness, which I think has become more prevalent in society after the lockdown, because as I've said repeatedly. Is it more prevalent or is it more recognized? I think it's both. I think people are paying more attention to it, but I also think it's more in existence because as I've said, I I say this repeatedly, if you're in prison and you violate the rules, what do they do to punish you? They put you in solitary confinement. Because that's the worst thing you can do to a human, is cut them off from social activity and such. And now we've had this pandemic where people were isolated. And if not isolated, they still are six feet apart from each other. And we have a whole society that instead of having interaction, wanting to go to a coffee shop, would rather text each other or communicate through Instagram or what other media you have. And I think um, it's becoming more prevalent that we have problems with with mental illness as a result. And I think it's almost insightful that Kubrick saw this as we kind of 
started to compartmentalize our lives. Got it. Very clear. Do not slide into Dana's DMs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. For me, I was trying to think about this because this could mean a lot of different things. I think for the obvious, there's the alcoholism, there's the mania, there's don't try to kill your family with an axe. Don't take a job you're not prepared to psychologically handle. But the obvious one that kept coming back to me that ties in to what really is the Rorschach test of the movie is the final image of the movie with the picture of Nicholson or at least somebody that looks like Jack Torrance as a much younger man in a very much younger time. The sins of the father and how they project on the children or those that come after you. And everything in this movie, to me, from the construction of the Overlook Hotel to the confusion between Charles and, I can't remember... Delbert. Delbert. Delbert Grady, yeah. Delbert Grady, or the confusion between those two, and how you somehow relate all of those characters together, to me says that there's some form of the past that will come back to haunt us. And whether you want to say that has tie-ins, which are very explicitly alluded to, such as Native American genocide, or the potential for the Holocaust, which Kubrick was very involved in and wanted to make his own Holocaust movie at some point and never explicitly did. I think that is the way that this ties in, because one of the few really jarring moments in the movie for me is the discussion in the bathroom with Delbert, where he seems to flip on a dime And all of a sudden, this becomes somewhat of a racialized movie where he uses a fairly significant racial slur, which sticks out in 2023 that I wasn't necessarily expecting. But it makes sense within the context of the film where you're thinking, oh, you're getting a bunch of rich people, movie stars, ex-politicians that they mention have stayed at the Overlook that is built on the backs of other people. And then he gets upset because somebody who's coming in to help is a black man. To me, that's the part that stood out is the sins of the father repeating on the sons or their children. And that's why the tie-in where you have Jack going after Danny, that he's essentially haunting him, even though it's in a realistic form at that point. I like that. That's a good, I, I haven't seen that interpretation of the photo at the end. So that's, that's something somewhat new about him being a representation of kind of like a cycle of abuse conti- like that has happened, that is continuing into the future with Danny and it has actually circled all the way back to this founding of the hotel with the, the 1921 ball. Well, and the other thing that I don't mention because it's not explicitly mentioned within the, the movie, but it is apparently part of the book is there's a question of whether Danny and Jack, if Jack can shine and whether Danny can, is a product of them being sexually abused at one point or another, because I guess it's mentioned that Halloran was sexually abused as a child, and that's maybe how he gets his ability. So there could be some connective tissue there. You're looking at me like I'm insane, Dad. No, I'm... I don't know. I'm just... Sometimes I think... It wouldn't surprise me if Kubrick put the photo in at the end simply because he just wanted to be provocative and cause everybody angst as to what the hell that photo meant. All right. 
Well, let's dig into a few more facts, and I will turn it over for the first time, our Did You Know section, to our guest, who will grace us with her ever-present knowledge on her favorite film. So thank you for the honor of being the, the first Did You Know guest. All right. Did you know The Shining was supposed to be filmed in just 17 weeks, but ended up taking 51 weeks to complete, causing Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, to be delayed? Did you know, even though The Shining novel is based on Stephen King's stay at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, the exterior shots were filmed in front of the Timberline Lodge in Oregon. Did you know, due to Kubrick's severe fear of flying, only the establishing shots are filmed in Oregon, the rest of the Overlook Hotel, inside and out, was built on a soundstage in London. Did you know, there have been so many wild fan theories about the hidden meetings in The Shining that these conspiracy theories have their own documentary called Room 237. Did you know, Stephen King wrote a screenplay for his novel for Kubrick who turned it down without even reading it since his vision for this movie was already something he wasn't willing to compromise with a different writer. This change in artistic vision caused King to hate the adaptation of his work and said regarding Kubrick, I think he wants to hurt people with this movie. Did you know? It took over a year to plan the mechanics of the famous elevator scene and nine days to actually shoot. To get this scene in the trailer, Kubrick told the MPAA that the elevator was spilling out rusty water, not blood. Did you know? Stanley Kubrick, famous for his perfectionism and demanding nature on set, drove both Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers to tears at different points in this production. The only actor spared from Kubrick's wrath was child actor Danny Lloyd, who often played ball with a director between takes. Did you know? The scene where Wendy strikes at Jack with a baseball bat took 127 takes to get right. The actors weren't given breaks, and Shelley Duvall ended up being dehydrated and exhausted by the end of shooting. The odd and unhinged acting scene from both Duvall and Nicholson in this scene is the result of this torturous and lengthy film process. I can add one, which is I saw an interview or a piece that was written apparently the next film Scott Man Brothers did was with somebody, and I forgot to look up who it was. Clint Eastwood. And he took it in one take and he, they said rap and Crothers went, what? And he burst out in tears because he couldn't believe that you could do a film in one take. Yeah. The polar opposites being Kubrick and Clint Eastwood. Anyway, I could add a few more onto the top of this, such as uh, the original room from the book is actually 217. But because the Timberland Lodge did not want their movie associated with a room that actually exists in the hotel, they had to change it to 237. Even though if you go to the Timberland Lodge, their most requested room is still 217. Or that Shelley Duvall was so dehydrated that she couldn't produce tears by the end of those takes. Yeah, and and she actually, I believe she has schizophrenia and some people believe that this movie like caused the illness to to come like she obviously must have had the genetic code for it but like the stress of this was the the uh, cause of the illness to manifest itself and um there's also i wasn't sure if this was newsworthy enough but uh kubrick did make nicholson eat nothing but cheese sandwiches which is his least favorite food for two weeks to get the anger underneath him like the irritation so that's also a little weird (laughs) oh my god so this is one of the 
or uh, first few films to use Steadicam as a technology use, but it also invented the low-hanging Steadicam use. So basically, because Kubrick wanted a camera that could be below the waist so that he could follow Danny on the big wheel, then he had, I can't remember the, the... person who technologically derived or invented Steadicam, but he was the cinematographer for the film. He ended up recreating this new type of the Steadicam that's uh, pretty often used anymore for shots that are that low to the ground. Also, speaking of the Razzies, and I know that Shelley Duvall's Razzie was rescinded in 2022. It was rescinded with another Razzie at the same time. What was it? Can you give a, a hint, like a, a general hint, like the genre or the, the type of award? Yes, it was for one particular actor and worst performance in one of his own movies because he had been in five movies the year prior. Oh. It's a big action star. Arnold? Not quite, but about the same period, yeah. I, mm, Sly? I'm not good with action. That's... No, so it was Bruce Willis because uh, he had appeared in five films that year. And so they gave out a Razzie for worst Bruce Willis performance in a Bruce Willis movie. And then they rescinded <laughs> it like a month later because that's when his family announced he had that illness where he was having mental incapacity and speech pattern breakdown. And so the Razzies felt so bad that they rescinded this on the same day. Like, one day after that was announced, they rescinded the Razzie from literally the year before, and they rescinded Shelley Duvall's at the same time because they're like, yeah, these are our two biggest mistakes. Let's just take them both out at the same time. (laughs) Okay. All right. So with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the breakout movie of 2017 in Jordan Peele's directorial debut, Get Out, written and directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Allison Williams, Bradley Whitford, Catherine Keener, Stephen Root, and Lil Rel Howery. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance. You know what? Screw it. I'm going to go first on this one. For me, this is hands down, and I really wanted to put them in another category, but because they have such an effect on the film, and I think it is outsized by comparison to everything else, the thing that stood out to me when watching this movie is the atmosphere that is set from the opening moments through the end of the film. And that is set by the music. So my best performance goes to Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind for the music for this film. Because without it, I don't think the movie is anywhere near as dreadful or creepy or anything else. I think it plays out as maybe a thriller or a drama, but the music sets the tone for this entirely. Thank you for mentioning them. So I have I have Wendy and Rachel as my second. So thank you for giving them some recognition because they often get overlooked. And I do agree totally. They set the tone, and I've I, I've researched into Wendy's life, and she's like she's a pioneer in uh, electronic music. So we wouldn't have basically the ability to create electronic music without her. You know, we would have to still have orchestras. So it's it's a big she's a big deal that people don't really know how big of a deal she is. And 
she at Kubrick mentioned before he died that she is one of the most and he means this in a loving way difficult people to work with because she's one of the few people who push back on him and he really actually admired that about her that he would call her in her studio in New York and be like you need to redo the whole thing and she wouldn't she would fight back with a lot of you know actors and whatnot just kind of would bend to his will and I, I admire that she gave him some some grief as well one of the weird things that I stumbled upon accidentally, the opening montage where they're doing the tracking helicopter shot over the drive, I heard the music for that on a podcast I was listening to in some of my preparation for this. And if you have it at 1.5 speed, it sounds like a child crying. Oof. <laughs> Which is like weird in itself, but I, I backed it up and repeated it twice because I listened to all of my podcasts on 1.5 because I'm a crazy person. But yeah, that was distinctive that it was like a child crying and I, I couldn't get that out of my mind. But to be able to create such intonation, feeling, the, the dread that's all a part of this movie, the reason why your skin crawls is not because this has a lot of jump scares or weird moments. And yes, Nicholson is doing his Nicholson thing, but it really wouldn't be set without the just creepy music that crawls up your spine from moment one to last moment. So, Dad, did you want to take a stab at best performance? Uh, I have Nicholson. Actually, I had the same for best secondary performance, so I'll just go there, too, at the same time. But I think this really made Jack into a household name and uh, kind of advanced his career. I mean, if you say The Shining, almost everybody immediately recognizes Nicholson from being in it. I think it's probably one of his better performances, and it's probably one of the few that he actually had to extend beyond his normal persona, because otherwise most of Jack's roles are Jack being Jack. All right, so there's the Jack before The Shining and there's the Jack after The Shining because peak Jack Shining is like him on dialing it up to 12. But Colonel Jessup is only at like eight. And his character from The Departed, uh, I can't remember it right now, which is sad for me because it's one of my favorites, but that's at like a seven. And all of those are just like these psychotic characters and it's the degree to which he turns those up. It's not the Jake from Chinatown. It's not his character from One Flew Under the Cuckoo's Nest, which are much more subtextual and subdued characters. No, this is like full psychotic break Nicholson. I think this is about the time that he really kind of goes for it on a lot of his other movies. There are moments where he was much more subdued later on in his career, and he got some nominations for, like About Schmidt, a much forgotten film except for Kathy Bates but <laughs> but even so I, I think this is one of the two versions of Nicholson we've ever gotten and it's probably again I think his most famous role VP best performance for you Kubrick because Kubrick's got a Kubrick it's you know it, it honestly goes without saying but just because he is an obsessive personality and and he was obsessed with the book The Shining and that there's actually a story that in coming up with what he wanted his next project to be, he purchased a whole bunch of horror thriller novels and 
he would reading them. And as soon as he got bored, he would throw them against the wall. And his, his secretary or assistant would knew that he found something good when the sound of book throwing stopped. And then he just became engulfed in The Shining. So I really appreciate him loving a book that much, even though Stephen King, you know, has his grapes with him. I appreciate that he got absorbed into a book and wanted to to create that and and put in so much so much detail and put in so many layers to the story that he wasn't just like oh here's a flat adaptation of everything that Steve, that Stephen King wrote and take it or leave it. He really delved into it really deeply. I find it interesting that and I can't remember the reason why. But somewhere in the 90s that Stephen King eventually signed a contract with Kubrick where he could no longer criticize Kubrick for the movie. That's hilarious. He could still criticize Jack legally, but he has a contract that he can no longer criticize Kubrick and The Shining. Interesting. I can't remember how that came about, but that was somewhere in my research today. So, But Kubrick's my best secondary, and I think it's for all of the intentional choices, all of the Rorschach ability. I think there is some credence to him being a genius. It's just, it's so far either advanced that I can't pick all of it out. Like 2001 is kind of a, either it's a Marvel or he had to be tripping on something hard because I don't understand even one tenth of what that movie could potentially be about. But other people can supposedly see it. And The Shining is interesting because you can interpret it in the 20 different ways that we've already mentioned before. This is one of the few films where I was apprehensive going into it. I have been for years, which is why this was my first time. But I'm actually, because of all of the controversy and all of the conspiracy and whatnot, I'm very curious and almost excited to rewatch it again just to see all of these things that everybody else has seen in it. Have you seen Clockwork Orange? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> wow. Alex DeForest doesn't do it for you? <laughs> the toothpick scene? Oh, yeah. Um, oh. Singing in the rain. Yeah, Gene Kelly uh, would, is still probably rolling around from that one. Yeah. Anyway, best secondary for you? For me? Yeah. I gave it. I said the uh, musician or the music and the. Oh, I didn't realize that that was. Okay. You want to move to best cares or most charismatic then? Well, that's where I went with Kubrick because I think this movie cemented him as being the mad genius. You know, a lot of his films were kind of like, um, okay, but this kind of took him to a new level. I found it interesting that most people said that the, the director that he most looked up to was Hitchcock. You can see that in this movie. And I think to a large extent, um, his appreciation or people appreciating his work has been more in looking back than at the or at the time that the films were released, because I think they were beyond what people were doing or thinking or appreciating at the moment. It took some longitudinal consideration to understand and appreciate what he was doing and so i think though this kind of cemented him at that point in time and kind of emphasized and made people go back and look at some of his other works that they may not have understood or appreciated as much with a new light i had down nicholson for a lot of the reasons i already cited but there's 
just an aura about him in this film that you can't really take your eye off of him, despite the psychotic break. He owns every scene he's in, and despite what you would say in some circumstances is overacting, because of the nature of how this film went, and because I think everybody's dialing it up, it really doesn't seem like overacting. And thus, I think he got probably the best performance out of Nicholson that you probably could have ever gotten, even though Nicholson has had this great and glorious career. I think there's a reason this is known as his most famous character. Yeah. I'm Nicholson too, for charismatic, same, same stuff. I mean, you can't really beat his performance in this. So let's go to best scene. Then I have 11 down, which is a lot more than I thought when I sat down to like, okay, let's think of through all the scenes, but in order, the opening tracking drive from a technical mastery, but also the introduction of the score. Then I have the interview scene with Ullman because that has been picked apart and picked apart for every parsing that you could possibly get, especially the part where he talks about the former caretaker murdering his family. Then the first tricycle tracking scene is just so technically masterful. I just loved being able to follow Danny on that big wheel through the halls and the sound changes as he goes from like carpet to the hard floor and then back to the carpet. And it, it was just great ending with him on the uh, twins who weren't actually twins. Then Jack's first snap where he has his first, uh, I guess, break of sorts. He snaps at Wendy room 237, the gold room, so the first time that he's drinking with Lloyd, Delbert Grady, so that'd be kind of the second time in the gold room, Wendy finds Jack's writing, which I will also partner with the staircase scene, so that's all one big piece, Jack in the pantry, which is a scene I need to rewatch, here's Johnny, so him chopping down the door, which I heard took like 80 takes to do, and they had to hang a new door every time they did a take, which is just ridiculous. And then the maze chase. So those are my 11. Did I miss any? All work and no play. So is which part of that? Just her discovering it because, I mean, you could, is it counted, the question, is it counted in the baseball scene? Because, I mean, that turns into the baseball scene. But I'm just purely referring to her discovering his insanity and then him appearing behind her. And I call that like a scene and then it moves into the baseball scene. Okay, so that to me was one long scene, which okay. is why yeah. I think it is probably my favorite mm-hmm. and arguably could be the best scene. I mean, I could take a lot of arguments for many of these scenes. The opening helicopter tracking, the low tracking on the steady cam with the big wheel, any of the technical marvels, I think you could do. For me, that's the best acted scene. And so that's why I grouped it together because... Wendy finding that, I mean, that's really where you get the true introduction that something is terribly wrong for the really the first time. You kind of have gotten allusions to it, but that's right, really when it the mask comes off, more or mm-hmm. less. And then coupling that with the actual staircase beating and him just completely going off the rails. You've had your whole fucking life to decide what's a few more minutes going to do you. That type of him dialing it up in that scene is probably the best version of Jack. Because even when he starts chopping at the door, he's just, he's almost a caricature at that point with the uh, big bad wolf and the here's Johnny. But that's the more famous moment. I think the better acted moment is the staircase. 
But that's why I lumped them together. But I could I could see the argument for separation though too. Yeah, just as there's a bit of a like a tension shift because we all kind of know Jack is going to come out at some point when she's reading the all work and no play part. And mm-hmm. then I think once he makes an appearance, there's a, there is a, it went from the threat of danger to clear danger. And that's why I, I kind of count it as it's a separate thing, but altogether it's excellent. If we were to have a category for most curious scene, that's the pantry scene. Cause I still, I don't know how you completely explain unless you just simply go with the most simple Occam's razor version of it that somehow the ghosts have some feeling or ability beyond just haunting things, but they actually have some physical sense to let him out of the pantry. Otherwise, I don't know how you explain that scene. But I have I have two theories that I can share. Sure. One is that handle that he has that is actually an emergency release handle in case you get locked in the cellar and which makes sense because if you're going to have people like only three people living in a place that's deserted they could get locked in the freezer like there's still shots the freezer has one too and if you google an emergency release for an industrial freezer that's exactly what they look like so there's a chance that he could have never been locked in and he just chose to wait until he felt because he got hit in the head so i think he needed time to feel at his best to attack them and also you see there's a moment where he is, you know, the camera is facing him up and he's yelling at her like, oh, my, my head hurts. Come like, come get me, Wendy. He's smiling because he's and he's playing with it. And I think that is indicating that he knows that that's an emergency release and he can get out when he wants to. And I think he's just sitting there. It's like, you know, I, I don't know if the ghost actually can physically do anything in this world. But I actually think he could have just got himself out. And then the other theory is that Danny purposefully opened the door to chase him out and make him freeze to death. The first one seems very plausible to me. The second one, I would need a lot more time to think about. All right, so what out of my nominees, I guess, would be the best scene? The twins, the tricycle twins scene. The tracking shot? Yeah, the tracking shot. Dad? I actually like the interview scene because it just represents that there's something not quite right. Manager of the hotel is kind of swarmy, and things aren't quite as they seem, and Jack... You mean smarmy? Swarmy, excuse me, if I said no, something else. No, smarmy. Swarmy is like a bee's hive. Swarmy or whatever. He just... Whatever. Anyway, he just seems, everything seems off. And it kind of sets the tone that nothing is going to be as exact or be exactly as it seems throughout the rest of the film. Okay. Boy, I'm having a hard time thinking any one of these is necessarily lower than the others. Boy. Yeah, I think I have to go with Wendy finding Jack's writing and then into the staircase scene. I I just, I know it's a longer scene, and like we said, it could have been separated, but if you piece the two together, I think it's a great job of both the directorship and how that shot, especially her finding the writing and then piecing through it, and you see all the different variations of it, and then going to the staircase scene, which I think is probably the best acting scene by the two of them out of the movie. It's also my favorite. So, VP, what's your favorite? Um, do I have to pick just one? <laughs> I've got three. 
if I had if I had to pick the absolute one, it's Floyd the I mean Lloyd the bartender, because I feel like that's like the crux of the movie. That is when things really shift. I mean, obviously the the baseball scene we just mentioned is when things go from potentially violent to actually violent. But I think that is the scene where this goes from me like there could be something weird going on and to there like the hotel is actually like messing with his mind here that's not just uh there's a ghost and some creepy stuff and maybe maybe danny sees things that we don't know about it it turns and we've learned so much about jack he says some awful things about wendy awful things about danny he said you know says white man's burden which could have a million different connotations to what he means by by that and he also uh, talks about selling his soul for alcohol and how um, he didn't mean to hurt Danny. Like all these things, like it's the best. We don't ever get Jack alone. He's always with Wendy, Danny, or with uh, the interview. You know, that's the only, we never see him just like be himself and he's himself around the fictional fake bar bartender. And right as that's happening is when Danny is telling his mom that there's a woman in room 237. So it's like when the paranormal activity is getting really serious. But if, if uh, my second choice and third choice are uh, the what I call the ending montage of horror, and it's where uh, Wendy is just running around and seeing different terrifying things, the, the man with the split head, the dog slash bear costume sex act, and the elevator, and she just has the big wide eyes and the knife, and she's all, all frantic. And then also the, the flash cut to Jack Frozen at the end. So those are those are my three favorite scenes of the movie. Honestly, I'd need somebody to explain the bear fellatio. It's, it's in the book, actually, if you want me to explain. It's, actually, it's supposed to be a dog in the book, like that matters, but... The there was a wealthy man and he had a younger boyfriend, like a like a sugar daddy situation. And they broke up because the younger guy pissed him off for some reason. I forget why. And he said, you can come back to me if you dress up like a dog and like beg to be my lover again. And so that's an allusion to this like famous event that happened at the in the book, like in the history of the hotel. But that's an intentional choice. Like, I can't even say that that's, like, something that would be an error or a, a mistake, you know, just human error. That That's a very intentional choice for a guy who ignored a lot of the book. So I, I wonder why that's necessarily in there, because we get almost no other mentions or descriptions, but all of a sudden Wendy can see all of the ghosts, too. So now can she shine because she's had some level of violence presented upon her at that point? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. There's also, if, if there's kind of this idea that, and I don't know if you guys have seen Stranger Things, but there's kind of this idea that the the Overlook is very similar to how the Upside Down works in Stranger Things. It's like a hive mind that there's like one thing orchestrating it all and that it shows itself when it wants to be shown. So it might show itself to someone who shines, but as, as I guess like the the violent activity increases around it, it will make itself apparent to other people. At least that's what the general vibe that that people get from this book, that it, that other people who don't have this ability will eventually see the stuff when it, it wants to show it to them. Dad, did you have a favorite scene? I, I like the Gold Room. It's a cinematic version of a 
um, what do they call those? The bubble, like in a cartoon where it's, you know, or a comic strip. It, it allows you to th- know what Jack's thinking and what is going on behind the scenes uh, psychologically without it being within the context of the story. I thought it was a very interesting tool to use to explain a lot of things that up to this point in time you were not understanding necessarily. Most indelible moment. Can we just admit that it's the Here's Johnny? Yes. I mean, it's, like I said, it's on fucking t-shirts. It was on the poster. This one isn't even really that hard. I mean, there are a lot of moments that stick out to this movie, but that's the one that has transcended time and pop culture. Well, excuse me, for those of you who don't understand, Nicholson came up through Roger Corman, who did a lot of B-films, low-budget type things. He couldn't afford a lot of scripts, so a lot of times the script was, so-and-so enters the room and says something to so-and-so. And so they would just ad-lib. So Nicholson was phenomenal for ad-libbing, which I find interesting that he has to go through this process with Kubrick and his 100 takes. But this is just where Nicholson gets to ad-lib and it becomes bigger than life. I know it's very famous that Nicholson stayed and did all of his own I guess, takes or well beyond what he was supposed to do for a few good men. and was just on set the entire time and read the famous monologue the same way every time so that they got everybody else's shots. I don't know if he does that, if he hadn't worked with Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) There's like an endurance test you almost needed to go through before you were cast in one of his movies. Yeah. All right, let's take our second break and we'll be right back. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. Uh, Al Brown, 83, American actor, was in The Wire. He's also a Vietnam veteran. Uh, we also lost Gina Lola Brigida, 95, Italian actress, Bread, Love and Dreams, The Wayward Wife, and Flesh, and The Woman. I would just absolutely encourage anyone to go to the page that's uh, available in the show notes and then go to her in the in memoriam section and click the link to her bio or obituary that I collected. She had an extraordinary backstory on Hollywood and her life. I'll just share one little tidbit that I pulled out of this. Apparently she was an Italian actress who wanted to kind of make the jump to Hollywood. And apparently Howard Hughes found one of her films and became like instantly in love with her. So he promised her or found her and promised to send two tickets to bring her over to America to be on contract for his studio, but then only sent one ticket like two hours before she was supposed to leave. So only she came and then had his own divorce lawyers meet her at the airport. I mean, it's just insane. But he apparently was after her for like 20 years. She was apparently this famous beauty that just about every leading man was after. And yeah, it's an extraordinary story. So I would encourage everybody to kind of dig into that one a little bit. You know you've made it in pop culture when you get to have your own name because she's mentioned in the Flintstones as Gina Lola Bridgerock, (laughs) which uh, I always thought was funny. I knew you were too good at the pronunciation off the first time. Anyway, 
One late addition to the list, we also lost Jeff Shooter, 41, an American producer. He had worked on some different comic strip productions, including for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Invincible. And so we take a moment here to recognize all those we have lost for their contributions to the arts, writing, literature, acting, and the arts generally, with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Best funniest lines. I don't know if any of these are funny on the first viewing for me, but I think eventually they will come up. So I'll just take the easy one off the top, pick the low-hanging fruit. Here's Johnny. I've got, you've always been the caretaker. Red rum, red rum. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Do you like ice cream, Doc? Wendy, I'm home. My predecessor in this job left a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker, and he came up here with his wife and two little girls. I think they were eight and ten. And he had a good employment record, good references, and from what I've been told, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms in the West Wing, and then he... He put both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Come and play with us forever and ever. Little pigs, little pigs, come let me in. Not by the hair of your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. I don't know if you could have had the stamina to work with Kubrick, but you are creepy enough to play Jack Torrance dead. Thank you. Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm it has caused me. I was going to change my jacket for the goose and fish soiree. You got any more, Dad? I, I dreamt that I that I killed you and Danny, but I didn't just kill you. I, I cut you up in little pieces. Oh, my God. I must be losing my mind. Danny. Danny boy. Daddy's home. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Oh, I could do that long one, but... I don't think I will. So you're done? Yeah, I'm done. The police thought that it was what the old timers used to call cabin fever, a kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. I could see that if I had to spend that many months with Shelley Duvall. Ah, Dad. Either of you have any left? Otherwise, I have one last one. I'm out. Go ahead. One we've already mentioned. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. All right. I get to fittingly say for the first time, because we had not coined the term by the last time we did a Kubrick film, are we ready for the Stanley rubric for Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> All right. Legacy is up first. Who wants to start? I'll take it. So I'm giving uh, it both a 4.5 out of 5 for both industry and public. And the only reason it doesn't get a perfect 5 is because between 1980 and 1987, which in 1987 is the first time there is like a positive critical um, review of this that people are starting to reevaluate this movie, people didn't like it. So unfortunately, you know, the when you say from five years on to now, there was a, a few year period in there where people didn't like it and it was made fun of and and it didn't do as well. 
So it's not perfect, uh, unfortunately, uh, but, you know, it has now a big, big lasting time. And, and of course, as you mentioned, the tracking shots and the Steadicam are, are iconic and are, you know, now used widely. Well, I had a 4.5 for the industry and a 4 for the public. And the reason I went with those is because within certain genre and people who are fans, this is a perfect five on both. There are a lot of people who do not like horror or psychological thrillers. And so there's a lot of people that have never seen the film, have no interest in seeing the film. And so as a result, I could not give it perfect fives for both. I think the critics, because of Kubrick, have a slightly more interest in the film than the general public, but the circle I'm within, people of all ages within my office and friends of mine, I'll mention the films and just kind of gauge the reactions. And it was either, it was a very passionate, yeah, that's such a great film. And then you'd have other people who go, never seen it, don't really want to see it. I know what it's about. And so that's why I gave it the step down. All right. This gives me the oh-so-great choice of putting it at a 10. I will go there. From a legacy standpoint, all the critics have come around. Ebert eventually put it on his great movies list, even if it was covering all of his initially bad reviews. And he didn't do it just for this movie, but there are a lot of them out there that he gave bad reviews in the moment and then came around on 20 years later. Everybody did that. And I think it is understood to be, along with Psycho, the epitome of auteur horror film. So from a critic and industry standpoint, you want to talk about the tracking shots, the inventive techniques, the suspense, all of the other pieces that have come from this. I think that an industry-wide five is warranted. But from an audience standpoint, and I take your point seriously, Dad, because I myself was one of the people that is now on both sides of this. I, for a long time, did not want to see this. I thought it would scare the pants off of me. It didn't, but even so, you know, there's that impression. But I knew what the film was roughly about. I knew certain lines, certain scenes, certain moments. It has bled into the culture. You know the blood from the elevator. You know the twins. You know the axe through the door. You know here's Johnny. You've seen the meme of Jack Nicholson out in the cold. There are so many things that have permeated pop culture at this point that whether you've seen it or not, I think most people have an impression of this movie. And I can't say that about too many other films that if you, even if you haven't seen it, you know about it. Everything else that has permeated that level of depth within the culture, most people have seen. A Wizard of Oz, a Titanic, a Jaws, a Star Wars. This is one of the few that has it because of the taboo nature that's outside of it. And yet there are enough huge fans that can watch it simply as a ghost story. And then there are the other deeper ones that want to investigate for John Lennon and Yoko Ono. <laughs> so I will go for the full 10. So that makes it a 9.17 average between the three of us. Impact and significance, this is the one where this movie is going to suffer. I guess I will try and get it out of the way here. The industry did not like this film. It was seen as a flop for Kubrick, one which 
made him basically retreat for seven years. And I know he took a long time between films, but this was his longest period of time between films until after Full Metal Jacket to Eyes Wide Shut. So his last two films took him a collective 18 years to do and produce. And part of that is, is that I think he felt shut out by the public at large. I think part of it had to do with the Golden Raspberries. He just did not feel the love that he did for a lot of his other movies that even though a lot of his movies were ahead of their time and people didn't quite understand them and there were visceral reactions on both sides to all of his movies in the moment, this one was the most universally despised. I think part of that has to do with Stephen King and the Stephen King fans not necessarily appreciating it, but I had to give it a one for the industry, which is rare. From an audience standpoint, I can't give it too far down because I don't think that the audience reaction was quite as bad as the critical reaction. It still was the 12th highest grossing movie of 1980 in a year where there were some bigger movies that ended up having some longstanding legacies, Raging Bull, Caddyshack, etc., that were lower down on the list than this. But... I can't give it awfully high marks either. So I went with a two on that for a three overall. And I hope I'm not dinging this too hard. Okay. Um, I have it at a three because for, for both. Um, so I guess a six out of 10. Because, I mean, the problem is that that five-year period, it really did suffer a lot. But it also wasn't, it didn't lose money. It did make money back. So I, I factored in box office. There was at least some, I mean... There weren't glowing reviews, but there were some people who who did appreciate it, and there were some people who were genuinely frightened by it. So I don't see it as like a complete, you know, the room or anything of that nature. <laughs> and and it didn't, you know, even if it made Kubrick take a break for a while, it um it got, I mean, thankfully it got that, that revisit. It's, it's hard because, you know, we, we view it so differently now. I've had trouble viewing it, it through the eyes of 1980 and people just, I mean, the thing came out around the same time people didn't like that. So it's, it's a similar, similar vibe. So yeah, that, that's where I'm, I'm at. Cause I don't think that if the general public absolutely hated it, it wouldn't have made any money or would have, you know, people would have just stopped going to it within the first week. So I don't have it as harsh as you, but I still that five-year period just really killed it. This is where I get to make a comment that's going to be different from the two of you because I lived during the time frame that this was released. You don't have to remind us of how old you are. You already did that multiple times over. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Industry, I'm giving it a two because there were some positive reviews and there were some lukewarm reviews. So I'm not going to give it lower than two. But for the public, I'm going to give it a four. And it's not by its initial release. It's the fact that this thing got on HBO. And it was very much a HBO-driven film for a while. It was one where it was like, have you seen The Shining? No, I haven't seen that. Why would I watch it? Oh, you've got to see The Shining. And then people would watch it. And then they would say to somebody else, have you seen The Shining? You need to watch it. It's really creepy. And, you know, it, and it was almost like a club. Those that watched it and those that didn't. 
it wasn't something that you went out and said, you know, like, wow, this is the greatest film I've ever seen, or I love this film, and I really recommend everybody. No, you just kind of watched it because everybody was talking about it, but no one really wanted to talk about seeing it. They just would say, you need to watch it. So I'm going to give it a four for that reason, because I think it had, it's kind of like the Shawshank Redemption becoming big because of cable and the fact that it could be put on cable a hundred different times a day and it developed a following after the fact. I think this developed a following because of its exposure on HBO early on as people became, you know, started to watch these things from home. And uh, I think it had much more impact within that first few years than just at the release uh, at the box office. So I went with a six overall. I think you've both proven that I was way too low on mine. So I wondered about that. I wanted to give it a fair chance, but I didn't think I could go with a 10 on the first one without also trying to go in a little bit the opposite direction, because this is one of those movies that, in the moment, not met with a really warm reception, but at the same time, the legacy has gotten very big. So I will move mine up to two and a half and three and a half to match your sixes. So the math becomes easier. It's a six. Oh, you didn't need any help with that, huh? No, unless you (laughs) wanted to have now provided it, if you wish. That's all right. Okay. Novelty. I put it at 9.5 out of 10 because... I mean, I'm trying really hard not to be biased, but um, there there have been ghost movies before. There have been haunted hotel movies before. There have been movies about uh, a bad marriage and a like a alcoholic man. But I have never seen, and I have continued to not see anything like this in the horror realm. And it continues to be imitated by other people going forward. That a lot of people call The Shining the the thing that they they try to either emulate or it was the thing that got them into making horror movies whether they're actors writers directors so it it clearly was so new it struck a chord i mean it, it came out the same year as friday the 13th which those two movies also from a techno like just from the the way it is shot they're so different and it shows that that kubrick had a completely new take on on horror he was not following the blueprint that halloween or black christmas had laid out of like hide the killer only show the knife have women running into the forest screaming he really changed i mean there was other you know there's other slow burn horror movies from that time period as well exorcist and whatnot but i think he took that that idea of and also the, the special effects um he did not have them be all glowy and ghosty like the way poltergeist ghosts are so, and that that really wasn't seen for the way specters were were shown on screen at the time. So I think it's it's very very novel. I also went with a nine point five. I think that one of the things we often comment about in this category is is this based on something? And at least one of us, not identifying which one of us, but one of us often gives points down for having a source material that it borrows a lot from. Given the fact that he specifically ignored big sections of the source material and created his own narrative about it and completely different parts of the ending because the Overlook burns down in the book and it doesn't in the movie, I just think that that by itself, he had a creative vision. 
He knew exactly what he wanted, and if it took 127 takes or 80 doors, he was going to get it. And that level of persistence, all the intentionality, all of the other pieces that go into this, I think this is probably the most distinctly unique horror film I can think of, and I don't think there would be too many people that would argue with me on that. I think this borrows a level of the dread and an emphasis on the score in the way that Psycho does it. I think it borrows from the imagery and the shot making of a lot of other horror films of the time, but I think it's just very much a different version, and it really is one of the few true auteur horror films. I go with my 9.5. You're forgetting the reason why Kubrick did this film in part is because he was offered the chance to direct Rosemary's Baby. He turned it down. It went to uh, Roman Polanski instead, got all the awards, and he regretted it. So I can't give it the same level of novelty because it's within a group of more or films, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Shining. All three have the same general feel. All three are done in a very cinematic way. They're not the slasher horror films that Friday the 13th was or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or any of those that came at the same time or later. So I'm going with an eight for that reason. Yes, it's novel and it's well done and it's something that you can critically acclaim, but because of the existence of two other very popular films that were critically acclaimed, I don't think it's quite as novel and changing in the landscape as the two of you think. All right, so that's a nine average between the three of us. Classicness. All right, so there are two things that I want to discuss before we get to an actual number on this film. The first one, the racial overtones of the film. And I'm not even just saying the Native American part of it, but again, one of the few jarring moments in this movie is the use of the N-word by Delbert. Yes. And doesn't Jack repeat it back, too? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's introduced here as clearly something to be, I don't know, is it really a superiority thing? I mean, when we're in the scene with the gold room right before that, it's a lot of people in like tuxedos and evening or formal wear. And I think the projection of class, dignitary, royalty-esque stuff that was going on in the hotel by the specters, if you will, gives a moment of clarity to that. I don't know if everybody's willing to just completely write off that scene because it is, in a 2023 sense of mind, a word that you just don't hear thrown out unless you're watching Blazing Saddles. But it still is because it's one scene there. And it's kind of a sore thumb that sticks out, at least in my mind, even if I'm very torn on whether or not that degrades the film one way or the other i don't think i mean in my opinion it doesn't degrade the film because both delbert and jack are not good people and it isn't like it's not surprising for bad people to say bad things 
it's like if a movie about the Holocaust has Jewish, I mean, has uh, Nazis saying slurs against Jewish people, it, it would not mean that the film is less classic because that's how they would speak. They're horrible people who have a racist bias. And Jack, I mean, I'm not even sure if Jack really feels that way or if that's the spirit of the hotel getting inside of him. But either way, Delbert is is a racist. It's very clear. So I don't think it makes the film like, oh, we wouldn't say that today. Like a racist would still say that today. And it, I don't think it erodes it. It would erode it if it was like, you know, in the 90s when we used to say gay as like a like a, that's something bad as a joke. If that's left in, you know, a teen, teen rom-com, that dates it. And you're like, oof, like we wouldn't say that anymore. But a homophobe would still say it. So I, I and if the character happens to be homophobic, I don't think it, it would date it because the context didn't really change. That's kind of the way I took it, that within context, it gets to the character of who these people are. I think actually the inclusion of it makes more sense than them trying to write around it. Dad, is that what you think? Well, I've said this for a while, which is at least back in certain times, it was easier to tell who your racists were. Because now we have to, they they try to bury it and they use euphemisms like hoodie and inner city and such to clean up their uh, racist behavior. So I don't have as much problem with that. I'm curious to know what your second point is because I have a feeling the second point is the one that bothers me and why I rated it down. My second one is the film's use even though I would say that it's not celebrating it, by putting it on film, it does have a moment of putting it front and center, kind of in the way a war movie doesn't necessarily celebrate war unless it's a John Wayne film. But even though some of the action, you can get caught up in that, and so it does kind of celebrate war, even if that's not the intention. Mine is the either the alcoholism or the domestic violence. That's very apparent within the film. Uh, That's where I come from on this, which is the domestic violence. I can see a lot of children and females who have been victims of domestic violence really having PTSD triggers from watching this film because it was very believable and very realistic. And I understand the context and why it was necessary to show the mental illness, but the vivid presentation, I'm not sure you can continue to do that in this age. I think you have to more allude to it than actually visualize it. That's why I went with an eight for that reason. Okay. I went with the 10 because it's my, it's my all time, my ride or die. And that's fair. I, I... Yeah. I have a hard time parsing through some of these things because it's dealing with some of these complicated themes. I think from a timelessness aspect, it bumped it up a couple. And I I took the domestic violence as something that's part of reality. I, I guess I'm kind of coming down in the same place that I would a war film like Platoon or All Quiet on the Western Front. They're not necessarily made to celebrate war. They have them front and center and the horrors of war and thus the horror of a psychotic break, 
of domestic violence, of alcoholism that are all present in this movie, even though I think that those can be fun because you can see all the camp that's within Nicholson's performance and, you know, quoting the lines or doing stuff like Jack Torrance, you know, you kind of get a a fun sense of that. And that's why the movie's rewatchable. But at the same time, I still think that in a context, if you take a step back and don't necessarily, or can at least separate yourself from the point where understanding that this is a movie, then I think it still can be somewhat neutral on some of these topics, even though I could understand people that feel a lot differently than I do. So I ended up at a nine, which means that this is going to average out to a nine. Rewatchability, I'll give it up to our guest first. Is it a 10? Actually, I have it at a nine out of 10 because it isn't pleasant. So it's rewatchable in the sense that it takes you on a crazy journey and you don't get bored with it. I think I could watch this movie like 10 more times in a row and I wouldn't be bored. And I wouldn't think that, oh, like enough of this already. I would still be analyzing it and studying it. Um, But it's not something you turn on when you have had a bad day. (laughs) I mean, even though it's my favorite, my favorite film, because I like the artistic nature behind it. I like, I, I, you know, people get mad at the term elevated horror, but I'm going to use it. I don't care. I like that it's an elevated horror movie, but if I'm not feeling well, or I just want to turn my brain off, I'm not turning this on my actual, like people often ask me like, well, what do you watch when you're like feeling crappy? Because sometimes people think when you ask, what's your favorite movie, they mean like, what's your comfort movie? And that is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So that's, in my opinion, more rewatchable. That would get a 10 out of 10 for rewatchability because that's something I could just turn on at any time and be happy with it. But this, if I'm like, you know, it has such a severe sense of dread. There is the uncomfortable scenes of domestic violence. It's hard to just like chill with it. So that's why it doesn't have a perfect, perfect score. If you're in the mood, I think, to analyze a movie or to really get, you know, thrown into the depths of a very well-made movie, it's perfect, but not just for any old day. In watching this movie, I tried, and with any time we have like a horror film on the show that I haven't seen before or don't kind of know the rough outline, I usually tend to Wikipedia the plot, so that way it can't scare me. I intentionally (laughs) did not do this. I let this movie just try and happen for me. And by the time I got done, I'm like, okay, I'm not sure what to think. It's one of those that over the last two or three days, has become much more enjoyable in my mind as I'm thinking about it. And thus, again, I think I'd be excited to try and rewatch it at some point in time to see all of the other pieces and how everybody fits together this immaculate puzzle and get out of it all of the things that everybody else does. So I'm actually going to go with an 8.5, which is a shock for me. (laughs) What? Uh, I just was trying to think how you would enjoy the film if it wasn't in your mind. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, my my standard is, is will I rewatch it if I see it on? Will I, again, this is one that I, I think I've only seen the film once or twice since I initially saw it when I was like, 
15. It's not something I'm going to go out of my way, but, you know, I mean, I didn't mind watching it again. It's just not something that I go to on a regular basis. It's just not necessarily. So I'm going to go with a 7.5 for that reason, because, yeah, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I liked the artistic aspect of it. I liked the story itself. It's just not necessarily my go-to. Fair enough. All right. So that's an 8.33 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.15. So to recap the categories, we had a 9.17 for Legacy. We had a 6 for Impact Significance. 9 for Novelty. 9 for Classicness. 8.33 for rewatchability, and a 9.15 for audience score, giving us a final total of 50.65. And placing it on our list between Wally and On the Waterfront. Okay. Now that's a movie that I think Disney needs to make happen. Wally's version of The Shining. <laughs> He's isolated out on a desolate planet by himself. Robot's burden. Yeah, I think Disney has its own problems other than to try to make Wally into a uh, horror film. Yeah, apparently a uh, proxy fight is on the way, but that's for another podcast to discuss. Yeah. All right, remaining questions. I think there are an enormous amount of remaining questions, including how does this have anything to do with the Beatles and not the Rolling Stones, but uh, we'll leave that for another time. The one that you and I discussed at length the other night, Dad, was what actually drives Jack mad. I will modify this question slightly, only from the standpoint of bringing in a quote from one of my other favorite films. Madness is like gravity. All you need is a little push. Was Jack always insane and he just needed the right conditions to shove him off the edge? I think to some extent that's the case because... How many times have you seen people just completely overreact because there's a fly in the room? This fly is driving me crazy. I got to kill this fly. And they'll just, you know, be chasing the fly around the room. Something that small. This podcast is not about marriage counseling for you, Pop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I tend to look at this and I think one of the things I'd rewatch for that other people pointed out, but I guess I didn't think about it when I was first viewing it is kind of how insane Jack is, even in the scenes where he's supposed to be relatively normal, like the interview or closing day or any of the other stuff, even in the car trip where they're describing the Donner party. I think those are things to kind of watch for to see where if he's kind of got this weird nature about him already, or if this is something that's more gradual and he just kind of snaps, but My other one, the obvious one, what's the significance of the photo at the end? I have my theories. I think everybody does, but that's just an obvious open question. I believe Kubrick went on the record, but I I can't remember if this is a reliable source or not, um, that it is supposed to be a reincarnated spirit, that, that it's the spirit of the original caretaker who was like a bad person being constantly reborn in other people and coming back to the hotel to commit the same atrocities over and over again. So that it does really fit in with my sins of the father Mm -hmm. projection. Yeah. 
Yeah, but he didn't say that for a long... As far as I know, I'm, I'm hoping that this source was not made up because I can't remember exactly where, where I heard it. But it, he didn't... Kubrick didn't say that for a while. It was like he... Maybe 20 plus years, uh, or, or right around the time he, he passed away, that he he finally like said what he thought that picture was supposed to represent. All right. And if you're going to talk about sins of the father, do you want me to like express some of the things you have to fear? I have a good handle on who you are in this life, Bob. (laughs) Oh, you think you do. There are some things that I really don't need to know. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this is not a marriage counseling session for you. Uh, That's not the, that's not the issues. I don't need to know that you dress up in ladies' undergarments and go out to dive bars to sing like Donna Summer on Saturday nights. I haven't done that in years. (laughs) All right. Remaining questions for either of you. My remaining question is, it's actually like a prequel question, is I just don't understand how anyone could marry Jack. Like, I don't know why, how, why did Wendy marry him? Because I think book Jack is supposed to be a normal guy who was corrupted by alcohol and the spirits of the Overlook. So movie Jack is off the rocker from the beginning and needs a push. And I feel like he's been that way for probably most of his adult life. And I just have trouble seeing him. I mean, he's so hateful towards her. Like, like he had to court her. He had to get her to go out on a first date with him. I just have trouble seeing him as like a young man, like asking her out and them having a relationship, getting married. It just, he's just so like whacked. I mean, I know obviously there are weird relationships out there in the world, but it, that's my big question is I just don't know how he, like how he's been functioning <laughs> this whole time. To be fair, I would have the exact same question. If I did not grow up 30 minutes north of a place that is filled with these relationships. Yes. I mean, they, they were prevalent. We have a county not far from us that we refer to as where it's the wife does everything. She works a full-time job, takes care of the home, raises the kids, cooks the meals, takes care of the house, and the husband does nothing except occasionally goes out and does a part-time job to earn enough money to go deer hunting in the fall. Well, he does drink a lot. That's true. And those are those are very common relationships. Unfortunate as it may be to the rest of us, that seems to somehow work or not work for them. And I'm not sure how they end up in those cycles of uh, repetition, but it goes on for years and years and generations and generations, which, again, going back to this movie, the cycle of violence and domestic abuse. I have one remaining question, which is, I don't understand how Shelley Duvall was in this film. I don't think she did a very good job acting it. I think she made the character, which should have been, it would have been much more intense and thrilling if she would have been more cognizant of what was going on, more capable, more mature. She played the part as being kind of just a simpleton. And I think that that kind of destroyed the part. I think if she would have been much more of an equal to Jack and then this took place, I think it would have been much more terrifying because I think her realization that things were not as what they should be would have been more relatable and more, 
well, I guess the word is terrifying. You're starting to sound like Stephen King because his character from the book is a much stronger personality. Not nearly as meek, and it's one of his biggest criticisms of the movie. Yeah, I, I just don't understand her, and I don't understand the choice of her for this role. Well, for the sake of time, and, well, we've run well over time, uh, I will skip our final thoughts for the week and just thank our guest and anything you would like to plug. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, you can find me at T Wright Repeat on Twitter and Instagram. I have two dark thriller novels out, one called Shadowcast and the other called Dead Ringer. They can be found on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. I just actually sold the audio rights to Shadowcast and it will be an audio book at the end of March of this year. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Do you know who's doing the reading? No, I don't. I just signed it recently, so I don't have any information yet about who who's responsible for it. So it remains to be seen. Morgan Freeman. That would be great. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, all right. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I mean, I told you not to go in that house. I mean, how did you find me? I'm T.S. motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation fucking handled. Next week, we are discussing the breakout movie of 2017 and Jordan Peele's directorial debut, Get Out, written and directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Allison Williams, Bradley Whitford, Catherine Keener, Stephen Root, and Lil Rel Howery. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.